You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. It doesn't take long to run into different images or notions of what God is like. Many of them become cliche in our culture. Some may have already come to mind for you. One of them, commonly, I remember a football coach in high school frequently referring to God this way. He would call God the man upstairs. Kind of like a grandfatherly figure in his rocking chair with his blanket on his lap and you could go see him when you need something. But otherwise, he was just upstairs and everything else happened downstairs and out there. Others of us think of God primarily, we've been presented with an image of God primarily as an angry deity. He's not the kind of nice old man in the rocking chair. He's this sort of antagonistic, vicious, angry God who's just kind of waiting for us behind a corner, waiting for us to trip and stumble and fall and mess up so he can smack us upside the head and tell us to straighten up. Many of us think of God that way. For others, God is a distant landlord who only shows up when he wants something. And for others, God is a legalistic judge who wants strict obedience to all the rules. There are others, but I can imagine some of those resonate with some of us. And yet none of them are the image of God, the portrait of God that we find in 1 Timothy chapter 6, are they? In fact, they're caricatures. They are misrepresentations. They are all over the place. You will run into these attitudes of God, this idea that God is distant or that He's just this nice old man or that He's this angry deity and they they happen in different places and different people are influenced in different ways. But when we come to the Scriptures, we find a thoroughly different portrait. And when we come to the Scriptures, we find a portrait like this. We find a description of a God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but consider, is this the primary way I see God? When I get up in the morning, do I think about God as one who gives everything for my enjoyment? Everything. Or do I think about God as someone I better not upset? Someone who expects me to keep the rules. Do I think about God the way I think about my father? With unreachable expectations? Or do I think about God as one who is deeply, deeply, deeply invested in my experience of joy? How easily... How creative we are in sabotaging God's desire for us. We have a God who holds before us infinite joy, infinite beauty, 
A God who dwells in inapproachable light, whose glory is incomparable to anything else in creation, who longs to draw us into His presence, and we sabotage His efforts by chasing after things that can never satisfy us. And we all do it. All of us, at some time or another, pursue something that cannot give us joy. And we have before us a, a Father who gives all things for our joy. And Paul describes God this way because he wants to instruct Timothy, a young pastor, someone he's mentored, someone he's cared for and discipled and really a child in the faith, he says elsewhere in his letters. And he wants to give Timothy guidance as he learns how to lead the church and guidance. And so he, he wants Timothy to reflect on some, some questions that are before him. And he draws attention to the fact for Timothy that we human beings in general, 100%, tend to put our hope in things that cannot bring us joy and cannot bring us ultimate satisfaction. That's one of the things we have in common with people in the first century. There's a lot of things that are different, aren't there? <laughs> but one of the things we have in common is the universal human propensity to seek satisfaction and joy and hope in things we can grasp with our hands and not in the one who has laid hold of us in Christ. And so Paul says we have a choice. And the choice comes in the form of a question. It's a question that Timothy has to reckon with. It's a question that is offered in the context of this ministry and it's offered to us. Will we hope in what we have or in the one who gives? It's a question that all of us have to answer. We will put our hope somewhere. Every person on the face of the planet puts their hope somewhere. And Paul highlights in this passage our universal tendency to put our hope in things that we have. And he warns us about that. About the dangers of it. He says, don't do that. Instead, rather, hope. Hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. So if we want to talk about how that sort of hope in God is cultivated, how we begin to kind of diagnose when we're putting our hope in things that don't bring joy, things that are limited in their ability to offer us satisfaction, if we're going to sort of ask that, <clears throat> excuse me, diagnostic question, then we need to Start where Paul starts. And this train of thought really begins back in verse 6 where we began reading together. And Paul tells Timothy, of course, there is great gain in godliness. And we think, yeah, that's good. Great gain in godliness. I can live with that. I can jive with that. Except that Paul continues. He doesn't say there's great gain in godliness alone. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? He says instead there's great gain in godliness and contentment. And we begin to feel a little bit deflated because we, we strive to be content, but there are so many things to have. 
We strive to be content, but there are so many things that my friends have, and I don't. And culture tells me I need these, and I really want those, and maybe I can sacrifice some other things to get those things. Paul continues, there's great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. And there he's reminding us this, this reflection we've kind of dwelled on for three weeks now that everything we have is gift. Sometimes our mothers remind us that we've brought nothing into the world. <laughs> it's even more true for God. We brought nothing into this world. Nothing. We come into the world naked. We can't feed ourselves. We can't clothe ourselves. We can't give ourselves shelter. We cannot work. We cannot maintain employment. <laughs> nothing. We only survive if someone, a parent, takes us into their arms and cleans us up and feeds us and nurtures us and educates us and cares for us. We bring nothing into the world. Everything we have is what? You say it. Gift. Everything is gift. For Paul, the pursuit of contentment begins with recognizing that everything, every piece of property, everything we own, everything is gift. All of it. This great gain in godliness combined with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. And then he continues, this part should unsettle us. Maybe you noticed it when I read it. I read it twice. <laughs> Did you notice what Paul says is really all that is needed for contentment? Did it shock you? Did it jar you? Did you feel like Paul is stepping into the role of the playground bully, kind of shoving you around in your Christianity and turning you upside down and holding you by your ankles till your lunch money falls out of your pocket? Do you feel kind of pushed around when Paul says all we need for contentment are two things? Food and clothing? And I think, Paul, that may be all you need for contentment. That's not good enough for me. <laughs> need that book, or that guitar, or that trip, or that reputation, or that degree, or that job, or that house, or that car, or that neighborhood. I read this, friends, and I feel so convicted because I don't live my life like I, all I need is food and clothing. He doesn't even mention shelter. <laughs> he doesn't even mention shelter. Now granted, Paul 
He's an unmarried fellow. He's responsible for himself. He's traveling around the Mediterranean playing churches. I have children. My children need a place to sleep. So I don't want you to hear me say, like, <laughs> I don't want to misrepresent things here. Scripture is very clear that fathers have responsibilities to their wives and their children to meet their needs. But I think the point is clear, isn't it? None of us. None of us. None of us. Escape. We are so easily drawn to the latest gadget. And we put our hope and our energy and our love to things that we won't even remember in a few years. And Paul isn't asking Timothy or us to just up and go plant a church somewhere with nothing. He may be, and if he is calling you to do that, we will affirm it and care for you. There are people, I know people, I have friends and brothers and sisters who said God is calling us to sell everything we own and move to this community and plant a church or move to Africa and be a missionary. He does do that sometimes. For now, though, the thing for us to see is how much energy we expend Pursuing things. That will spoil and rot. The thing for me to see. Is how much energy I expend pursuing. Things that will spoil and rot. And Paul is no stranger to suffering. He's no stranger to suffering. He's not sitting off in an ivory tower somewhere looking down on the world saying, you should be content with what you have. And he's not living in the, the lap of luxury. He wrote to the Philippians from prison and told them in chapter 4 that he'd learn to be content with whatever he have has. He says, I know what it is to have little, what it is to have plenty in any and all circumstances. I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty, and of being in need. If you think, well, fill in the picture, Paul. You want to have some credibility? Tell us what it's like. And he says, well, go read 2 Corinthians 11. And Paul just catalogs his suffering. He says, I've had far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless floggings. You, can, you know what a flogging is, right? Often near death, five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. I don't know if you know anybody who received a stoning and lived to tell about it, but that's typically not how it works out. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
For a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, hungry, thirsty, often without food, cold and naked, and besides other things, I am under daily pressure because of my anxiety for the churches. That's the man who said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is not a detached pontificator. He's not sitting in the lap of luxury. He's suffering on the front lines of the kingdom of God. And he says we need far less than we think we do. We need far far less than we think we do to be content. He doesn't mention shelter. We've already talked about that. He doesn't mention transportation. He doesn't mention a good job. He doesn't mention entertainment. He doesn't mention Netflix. It'd be hard to be content without Netflix, wouldn't it? We lost movie theaters for two years. Thank God for Netflix! We're silly. Several months ago, I'm, who used to be a seminary president in Haiti, shared a picture on social media of a woman carrying a chair on her head down a dirt road. It caught my eye, so I stopped and read the caption. Turns out she was carrying her chair to church, and it was miles away. Would you come if you had to bring your own chair? Would you come worship God if you had to bring your own chair? It was warm in here when I got here this morning. The heat was on. I was grateful for that. But is Jesus valuable enough for us to worship if there were no air conditioning in the summer and no heating in the winter? If we didn't have comfortable seats and warm, comfortable climates? TVs with song lyrics and stage lights and nice graphics and all these things. Would the beauty of Jesus be enough for us to pursue him? Would the joy that he offers be enough for us? Or would we stay home in our comfort? That's the question Paul has for Timothy. It's the question he has for me. Is Jesus enough? Will you hope in what you have? Or will you hope in the one who gives all things for your enjoyment? I'll be honest with you, friends. I didn't want to preach this text today. I really didn't. If you've been here very long, you know how much I dislike preaching this series every fall. It's my least favorite sermon series all year long. I don't like to do it. It gives me anxiety. I lay in bed awake at night saying, how can I do this in a way that's credible and authentic and doesn't feel manipulating? Like, I just need to, like, make my paycheck. Stress, ask the staff. It's stress, I complain about it for months ahead of time. 
stresses me out. And I sure didn't want to pick this passage. <clears throat> there's lots of money passages in the Bible that are kind of nice. We spent like two years in First Cor- or Second Corinthians 8 and 9 because that one's much more pleasant than this one. But this is one where Paul warns us about dangers. And here's the thing. It would be pastoral malpractice to stand before you and not warn all of us about the dangers. You don't do that with your children, do you? Play in the road, sure, whatever. It's fine. Paul knows there are dangers. Notice he doesn't say those who are rich fall into temptation. He says those who want to be rich fall into temptation. That's most of us, I think. It's not like the 1% fall into temptation. It's everybody who wants to be part of the 1% falls into temptation. <clears throat> that temptation involves entrapment, he says, by senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Will we hope in what we have or in the one who gives? Paul doesn't say it's a sin to have money. Most of us in the room do. What he says is be careful and guard your heart. Because there's a danger. You're going to hope in something. Or someone. So pay attention. Guard your heart. C.S. Lewis captured the sentiment in an essay called The Weight of Glory. Lewis wrote, We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I am far too easily pleased. There are times where it is so easy Just live into that standard, stereotypical, climb the ladder, accumulate, gain. And it's so easy in those moments to realize that we are yielding ultimate joy. And that none of the things we lay hold on will go with us when we leave this when we step into the presence of the one who dwells in unapproachable light. This is one of those places, one of those texts, where Paul holds up the glory of Christ in all of its beauty, doesn't he? I mean, I can barely read it without weeping. He 
who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is He alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. And He lifts up Jesus and He points to the, to the moment where Jesus was faithful by, by describing the encounter with Pontius Pilate just a few verses earlier where Jesus, it is said, held on to the good confession where He was faithful when he was given the opportunity to walk away from the cross, he faced that vocation and offered himself for us. His life was offered, his blood was shed, his body was broken so that we could have unspeakable joy. And Paul just, he takes the beauty of the cross and he lifts it up. And he takes the beauty of the resurrected Jesus enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he holds it before us and he says, here, unapproachable light, beauty like you've never even begun to imagine. And we choose everything else first. Don't we? why Paul says the love of money is the root of all evil. Again, notice he doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. Money is a tool. I've known wealthy Christians who use the resources God entrusted to them to do amazing things. Amazing things. I gathered just a week ago, some of you were with us at the First Choice Women's Medical Center Banquet. A lot of people, many of whom have a lot of money, showed up and put up $200,000 to help support a ministry that's on the front lines of caring for people in crisis and saving lives in Montgomery and Bradley in this county. Money's a tool. God gives it and invites His people to honor Him with it. And I've seen times where people who love Jesus and who have great wealth or moderate wealth, steward that well, guard their hearts, and God uses that to change the world. So I want you to hear me. I'm not saying it's a sin to have money. Paul says it's the love of money, right? It's the thing in our hearts that drives us to say, I want more of that and I don't care what the thing that drives someone to gamble away their paycheck instead of putting food on the table for their kids. It's the thing that drives us to climb the corporate ladder instead of making it to that little league game. And it's a question of hope, isn't it? It's a question of hope. Am I going to hope in what I can accomplish? Am I going to hope in what I can achieve? Am I going to hope in corporate respectability and all the benefits that come with it? Or am I going to hope in the one who dwells in glory? In unapproachable light. And that's the beauty of this, isn't it? That's the beauty of this. Is that we don't have to, as Lewis said, splash around in the mud. And fool around. Silly thing. 
is God in His grace and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the present presence, agency of His Holy Spirit can enable our hearts to be so filled with His love that our living and our doing and our being are thoroughly oriented to hoping in Him. When that happens, when some Christians with some resources catch a vision of the beauty of Jesus, we might be surprised at the things that happen. When some Christians with some resources catch a new vision of the beauty of Christ, be surprised at the things that may happen. That's why Paul offers this exhortation. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Shun these other things. Run from the other things and pursue godliness in the way that you use what He's given to you. You see, if we cultivate contentment in Christ, we'll find ourselves free to live into these exhortations. To see the beauty of Jesus who loved us and gave Himself for us And how that beauty far exceeds all other things. All things. The Lord will do magnificent things through this church. So every year about this time, I get a little anxious. We've got to step up here and talk about money and finances. Nobody likes a sermon on money. But I also consider it a great privilege to be able to draw our attention to the one. Let me just read it again. Who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. You see, God knows Netflix doesn't bring ultimate joy. It's a lot of fun on a Friday night. It's been a long week. Take a rest. But not ultimate joy. We're also reminded that that God's glory and God's purposes are not in conflict with our joy. God's purposes and His glory and His beauty, His aim, His mission are not in conflict with our satisfaction. God knows that, that when our hope is turned from things that we can control to Him, we will find ultimate joy and deeper satisfaction than anything in this world we have, has ever provided for us. So we gather every time about this year to make a shared commitment to put our resources together for the sake of the gospel. On the table when you came in, if you missed it, you can grab one when you go out. There's a budget projection for next year. We started doing this a few years ago. 
The 2022 projection, things may shift just a little bit here and there before the end of the year, but our, our, our finance team has worked on this, and this is what they're after. Gives us a total of $343,275. That's actually about $2,000 less than the current year, which is to say we're trying really, really hard to be the best stewards as leaders in the church of what you commit for the sake of the mission. You'll see on the bar graph <clears throat> that we've divided things into five categories. The actual budget's about 12 pages long. If you want to look at it, you can come by the office and we'll print one off for you. You may need someone to interpret it to you. It has to be interpreted to me all the time. <laughs> There's a lot of lines for a lot of things, but these big categories give you an idea of where things go. Our staff expenditures are by far the greatest expenditure. We don't consider our staffing to be an expense. We consider it to be an investment. I think you've seen the fruit of that investment in the last couple of years. And I'm deeply grateful to Stan and the SPR committee, those of you who serve on that committee, for saying that we are going to invest in great team members who work at a high level of excellence and who share the vision and who desire to honor God in all that they do and who will give their energy and their lives for the mission that we are committed to in this place. So we put a lot of investment into our staff so that they can lead and direct and administer the ministry and help all of us find our way into places where we can serve. category is maintenance and operations, and there's money that goes to worship, ministry, missions, evangelism. That may seem strange to have staff and then ministry and evangelism kind of in different categories. Those would really all three be into one, because our staff is leading ministries and evangelism and ministries. But we want you to get a sense for how these things kind of break out across the way. On the table in the back, there was also a card We've been passing these out and sending emails to you. If you're not getting emails, let me know and we'll get you on the list. But this is a way to make a, a commitment to fund the ministry that we're going to do together next year. It's not a technique. It's not a here's your responsibility. It's not a this is your duty. It's an act of worship. It's a re-gift. a way to say, I want to honor the one who gives all things for my enjoyment. It's a way of saying I'm committed to the mission of Christ and his kingdom. The question for us is simply to ask what does generosity look like? The answer is it looks like Jesus. Generosity looks like Jesus. Who withheld nothing from us. And I wonder if when we consider that, if we can't then say, what does it look like for me to be deeply invested in the thing Jesus gave his life for? 
financially, with my time, with my gifts and skills and maybe things I'd like to develop some gifts and skills in even. How can I serve? How can I give? How can I offer a little more this year than I did last year to the one who loved me and gave himself for me? How can I say to Jesus, I'm going to put my hope in you and not in anything else that I can take with me. Let me read this. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good commission, I charge you, keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the right time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, it is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion what would it look like for us to live our lives with that confession? To Him, to the One who provides all things for our enjoyment, to the One who gives us life, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Can we offer that to Him today? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.